life god is taking your anger we pray that this message encourages and inspires you so let's uh, let's read uh, colossians chapter 3 this morning reading from verse 16 and i want you to think about your path to a restored fellowship your path to restored fellowship so i've put this little picture up there we've got a copper there doing his thing and we have uh, a uh, is that a is that a, a granny making food? Somebody cleaning a toilet. We've got Andrea singing on a guitar there, and then we have Doctor Stuart there as well. Nathan. In his previous life, he was a surgeon, apparently. All right. So I want you to think about, and I want you to put your job in there as well. Whatever you do, put it in there. Can you see yourself doing whatever you do there? Right. Hopefully, you're not sitting sleeping behind the desk. All right, so let's listen. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now verse 17, this is the cruncher. And whatever you do, say with me, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Now, how many of you guys, don't put up your hands now, sometimes think that your job really sucks? I hate doing this. Maybe you go to school and you say, I hate this subject. I don't like this subject. What does Jesus tell us? What in whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Giving for what? For what you're doing. God has placed you in a position of of, of destiny, a placed you in a position of purpose so that you can do what you need to do for him, so that people can look at your life and say, Wow. They're the best street sweep I've seen in my life. Now, I want to put two scenarios before you. And this comes out of Moody's illustrations or his antidotes. He says this, There is a man that came to our church the one day, and he wanted to give his life to Jesus. He seemed rather troubled. And I asked him what is wrong. Rather agitated, he blurted out, the fact is this, I've been stealing from my company and I am not sure what I need to do after my conversion. How much have you stolen, I asked him. Well, I never kept an account. I'm not sure how much it was. To which I asked him, well, could it have been, could it have been more than $1,500 this past year? And he says, yeah, it could be that and more. Now, how would you react if the pastor said this to him? Now look here, sir, I don't believe in a sudden work. So don't steal more than $1,000 this coming year. And the next year, no more than 500 And in the course of the next few years, you will get so that you won't need to steal anymore. And if your employer catches him, tell him to just bear with you. As you are being converted day by day, and you will get to the place where you will never have to steal again. Would you think that will be great counsel from me? Well, let me put another scenario. It's a little bit more of an aggressive scenario. A man comes and he admits that he drinks 
every weekend and then he beats his wife. That man comes to the meeting and wants to be converted. And I say to him, Sir, don't be in a hurry to change. I believe in doing this work gradually in your life. Don't get drunk and knock your wife more than once a month. Once a month, that'll only be 12 times a year that you'll beat her up. And if your wife complains, tell her, bear with me, because God is doing a gradual work in me. And you will come to a place one day when you won't need to beat her up anymore. How does that counsel come over? Would you think that would be acceptable counsel? All right. Now, how often do you and I hold on to pet sins, refusing to stop doing, using the excuse, it's not hurting anyone else, nobody is perfect, I'm working on it, and you don't understand my situation, and keep on doing that we know what is wrong. Now, when we look, you know, here's the thing. We've just set a standard saying, no, he can't steal anymore. And no, he can't get drunk and beat his wife anymore. But I'm, my situation's different. I can keep on doing this sin because God's not finished with me yet. Does that sound a little bit hypocritical? Who would agree with that? Yeah. Now, I'm not talking about perfection. I'm talking about are we working on our sin? Are we working on our disobedience? That's the question. Now let me ask you this question. The Bible says that salvation is instantaneous. You don't gradually become born again. You don't gradually become part of God's family. When you confess the Lord Jesus as your Lord and Savior, He forgives you of all your shortcomings, of all your sin. Am I right? He makes you part of the of the of the of the of the uh, uh, the kingdom of God immediately. You're in a completely forgiven state, and you receive all His forgiveness immediately. So why do we struggle to forgive people over a period of time? Oh, I'm just not ready to forgive right now. I will do it one day. Are you understanding how sometimes we become rather hypocritical? about our intentions and other people's actions. Why do we still expect God to be okay with a lifestyle that does not speak of this immediate work? I've had people say this sometimes when they give their life to God. They say, oh, I'm still a sinner. Which actually counters the fact that I'm, please don't do that back there which kind of counters this whole thing that I'm now a son in the house of my father. I'm not partly son. I'm not son one day and not a son the other day. I'm not the daughter of God today and tomorrow I'm not the daughter of God. When I give my life to Jesus, I'm accepted in totality and I'm forgiven instantaneously. So, This whole thing about giving my life to Jesus and being holy, and I see next week we're going to be listening to a a message by Muzz on holiness, is the question that I have for us. How serious are we about getting rid of the stuff that's wrong? Do we make it a priority, or do we just say, and the Afrikaners will get this, so gemaak and so gelaat staan. That's just the way it is, Jake. 
My dad struggled with this. His dad struggled with this. Great-grandpa Nicholas struggled with this. We're just a very, very, very terrible type of people. I cannot change. It's in our genes. And it kind of, and that's the kind of thing I want to talk to us about this morning because people look at us and we still use the same bad language that we had before we got born again. We still swear like a trooper and we think it's okay. We still act in ways that were unacceptable as a Christian. And it's funny how people that are not Christians know how Christians should live. Have you noticed that? They won't try it out, but they know how we should live. But we live in ways that is not acceptable. We've not come to that next step of our walk in Christ and saying, that is actually taboo. I cannot do that no more. I cannot ex- accept that no more. And I know you are, you know, you're a, you're a strong athlete, but there are certain things that you need to say no to. Maybe certain foods that you cannot eat that you love. But because you're going to a race, you kind of tell yourself, I cannot have a three, pound, a, three, a three kilogram of steak just before the race. I love steak. But if you're going to take a three kilograms worth of steak, as much as you love it, I can guarantee you won't finish the race. There are certain things that become taboo. Now, we read about the new converts in Thessalonica, in uh, Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 6. There we go. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. Let's just stop there. What is he saying here? He's saying people were looking at the disciples and saying, that's the way a Christian should live. We're going to live like them. Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. Paul says, look at the way that I live. Don't look at Jesus, look at me. Because I am the representative of Christ on this earth. And you need to look at the way I live. And if you're going to imitate the way I live, you'll do well as a Christian. We spoke about this on Wednesday night at the the Bible study. And everybody kind of said, that sucks. Because I'm not willing to go to Andrea and say, Andrea, speak the way I speak, act the way I act, and you'll be okay. Because maybe I don't set such a good example. He says, they became imitators of us and of the Lord. Uh, For in spite of persecution, you received the word with joy, uh, uh, with joy inspired by the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place your faith has become known. People knew what this church stood for. So that we have no need to speak about it. For the people of those regions report about us what kind of welcome we had among you. And how you turned from God to God from idols to serve a living and a true God. So that is a church that is, was willing to say, follow us. Our standard is, a, an, is an acceptable standard as a group of believers. Is it possible that a man may be a thief one moment and a saint the next? It's a question. Or be as vile as hell itself one moment and be saved the next? Is there this transformation power of God that comes in, that fills us with his power, and then says to us, you are now able to do all things according to Christ Jesus that dwells in you? 
And I will send you the Holy Spirit so that you will be able to be an example to everybody you meet. Is that not really why we have the Holy Spirit? Scripture reads, let him that stole steal no more. In other words, I used to steal. I got born again. I don't steal no more. It's not that I will gradually stop stealing. And why is this? Because it's a right about face. Afrikaans is omakir. It's a right about face. You guys that have been in the army, you will be marching left, right, left, right, and you'll stop, and they'll say, about turn. About turn, and I will walk away. And that is what true repentance is from sin. It's not that I keep on trying to not do it. It's that I make a concerted effort to not do it no more. And every time it comes to me, what do I do? Now, here's an interesting story, and I'm actually getting off, off my sermon right now. But if we go into Genesis chapter 3, uh, before Cain kills Abel, God says something to Cain. He warns him. He says, sin, sin waits for you at your door, waiting to overtake you, but you can overcome it. Not New Testament. These are the first people on the earth. And he says to Cain, Cain, I know what's in your heart. You do not have to kill your brother. You can overcome this thing. You can say no to the temptation. Now, who's been tempted this week? Who wants to confess? Who's been tempted to sin this week? Now, my words to you and to me this morning is, we don't have to do it. We can say no. We don't have to sin. But do we make this effort not to do what is wrong? I'm not talking about sinless perfection. I'm saying being able to say no to temptation. I think we can get pretty close to not sinning. Who agrees with me? Because there's very few sins that you don't know that they're on, on their way. You know all the signs before you're going to lash out. There are physical signs. There are emotional signs. You just know what buttons are being pushed, and you have the choice to react to those buttons. And if you give in to the buttons, oh, well, I'm just human, Jake. No, you were disobedient, human, Jake. <laughs> Is this making sense this morning? So uh, it's an act of the will. You choose to sin or you choose not to sin. You choose to swear or you choose not to swear. You choose to, to tell dirty jokes or you choose not to tell dirty jokes. You choose to look at a place where you shouldn't be looking or not. You choose to go to, onto a site that you shouldn't be going onto. You choose to do that. You cannot blame the devil for it every time. The devil made me do it. Come on, who's, be honest. Who said that to themselves before? It's all the devil's fault. So we come this morning to Exodus 33, verse 33, and we find that God says to Moses that you need to depart and go from here because something has transpired since the, expre since the expression of God's glory on Mount Sinai. We find that uh, Moses gets the 12 commandments. He comes down. He sees the, 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 um, the, uh, the, the, the calf that's been made. He throws down the words of God and he breaks them. You know, I mean, did he, could he have just put them down? Think about this. 
reactionary Moses. He's just had this amazing experience with God. He's seen the back part of God. He is shining like the sun. He's had this amazing experience in the presence of Jesus. And the first thing he does, he breaks God's word. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> and he throws them down. And he lets his emotions get the better of him. While he's still glowing. You see, there's a lesson to be learned in this. That we need to ask the Holy Spirit to make us aware of when we're going to do what we're not supposed to do. And just walk away from it. Or, or get some, side, some type of thing that you can do so that you don't fall into that trap every time. Don't allow the devil to lead you down the garden path. He does it all the time. Oh, this is going to be amazing. It's going to be our little time together. Come on, Jake. I'll even play nice music for you. I'll put the aircon on for you. I'll get the mood just right. And then I'm going to feed you poison. And that's the way he works. That's the way he works. Now we find that a few things happen straight after Moses comes down. He's thrown down the tablets of stone. He then goes and he grinds up this whole, um, what do you call it? Uh, a calf, he grinds it up, throws it in water, and tells the Israelites to drink it. Okay? Then he tells Aaron and the priests to kill 3,000 people with a sword as retribution for what they've done. I think they must have been the instigators. I'm not sure. Bible's not clear. Then God sends a plague on Israel to kill them because of their disobedience, and they die. This is a terrible day in, in, in the history of Israel because they say, this is our gods that brought us out of Egypt. Those were their confessions about the calf. This is the God that brought us out of Egypt. And they rejected God for whom he was and for whom he is. And God says, I am not mocked. I'm not going to allow you to get away with this. It's as if God is saying to them to move away from there, to say, you need to move on from what you knew into what you know. You knew the gods of Egypt. You knew the sinful ways of Egypt. You're now under new management, and there are new rules and regulations that you have to adhere to to be able to be called a follower of God. That's why God comes in Leviticus and he gives them all these laws, the laws of Moses. And he says, you shall not, you shall not, you shall not. Because they were used to, you shall, you shall, you shall. You were allowed to do that. But in this new, this new uh, 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 system that God is bringing them into, there's going to be a gradual changing of physical rules, of mental rules, of spiritual rules, because God knows his rules are better than the rules of what they came from. They had to start accept these new rules and start working them into their daily lives. So he says, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt to the land which I promised or that I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. Now here's the most amazing thing that we have to understand. Just because they sinned, just because they sin does not mean that the promises of God are yes and amen. 
We choose to make decisions that can shorten our lives. Uh, 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 Paul speaks about people that make, made shipwreck of their faith and they moved away from God. We're not once saved, always saved. You can choose to move away from God. You can choose not to follow the rules or the regulations by allowing sinful temptation to have the better of you. And those, here's the problem. James in chapter 1, he says what happens is that this comes in and then we take it, take it, take it, and then it leads to death. And that's what, that's what sin does. And that's what Satan wants to do. He wants to kill, steal, and destroy. The image bearers of God. You are the image bearers of God. And Satan wants to destroy that to you. He wants you to become not what God wants you to look like. He wants you to become not conformed to the image of Christ. Not to become like him day by day. He wants us to go to hell with him. And that's the important thing to understand. That's why he uses this tool called sin. Although God's correction has been displayed after the sin of the golden calf, God did not deny the children of Israel the promised land, nor deny them there his promise. But there's a change of tone when we go to verse 3. Let's have a look at this. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you. What is God saying to Israel? He says, I don't want to be around you right now because I'm scared I'm going to consume you. There's a holy wrath that we do not know about, church. The New Testament church, the church, this modern church, there's a, there's a, there's a, a, a lackadaisical uh, attitude towards God's wrath. We think God must just take it all the time and say, oh, it's okay, Jake, it's okay, it's okay. Don't worry about it. Oh, Jake, I'll give you another chance, and, and I'm going to give you another chance. And we think that because God is not acting aggressively, like in a consuming fire, that is what this is referring to, we think that we're getting away with it. We think that it's condoned and it's okay. Just because God's not reacting does not mean it's okay, church. For you are a stiff-necked people. What does he say in Matthew? He says, you have eyes that see, that do, you have eyes that do not see, you have ears that do not hear, and you have a heart that has become as hard as stone. You don't listen to what I tell you. You don't see what I'm trying to show you. And you've changed your heart against me. You've become stiff-necked. This is how many thousand years later? They're still struggling with the same thing. A stiff-neckedness. Nobody's going to tell me what to do, even if it's a consuming fire. And I think this is a lesson for you and I. It sounds like God's patience was wearing thin. So he warns them that his actual presence and personal protection will not be with him during the remainder of their wanderings. But they will be guided and helped by an angel. This could have been felt as a rejection on their part as they'd heard this evil tiding. They heard this evil tiding that I will no longer go with you. But I will send you an angel. It's like kind of saying, well, I'm not going to be with you no more, but I'm going to send my counterpart to look after you. Well, why is he not coming with us? Aren't we worth getting the best and God is saying, I need, to, I need to move away a little. 
I'm still going to protect you, but I'm going to protect you through an angel. So a lot of theologians believe that it could have been the guidance of Christ or maybe the Holy Spirit. There's very unclear, we're not very clear about who or what this angel was. And we find that after they hear this tiding in verse 6, that they strip themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onwards. In other words, they took off everything and they said, Lord, we're doing this as an act of worship. We are not going to hold on to these ornaments that we came from what we used to be. In other words, we're going to start getting rid of the things that are upsetting you because we want your presence again. We cannot live without your presence if your presence does not go with us, uh, 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 Moses, he says, if your presence is not going to go with us, do not take us from this place. There's a concern in his voice because he realizes that it's the presence of God that distinguishes them from all the other nations. It is, it is the presence of God that brought them out of Egypt. It's the presence of God that creates a, a great wind to protect them from the oncoming chariots. It's the presence of God that opened up the, 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 the waters that they could go through on dry land. It's the presence of God that has taken them so far, feeding them every single morning with bread from heaven. When they needed water, it was given to them. When they were needing of meat and complaining, we need some meat, he gave them meat. The presence of God did that. A cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. The presence of God was tangible. And he's saying to them, you're not going to experience me as close as you've been experiencing me because of your sin. Now I want to ask you, if you and I are busy with sin, do we experience God's presence as much as we normally do, Jet? Is there a, is there a distance that comes when we start reading the Bible, or we don't want to pray because we kind of feel we're hitting a ceiling. We're too afraid to read the Bible because God's going to tell us we know we need to stop, but we're not doing it. And we distance ourselves. We move away from him. Maybe it's time that we get rid of the ornaments like they did and said, Lord, we're going to get rid of this. This could have been seen as a sign that they were repenting, but God's was still on not going to give them a high five and let, uh, uh, and let things return to how they'd been. He was needing them to work on their character just a little bit more. When a relationship is broken down, we, want, we think that a sorry is going to restore it just like this. Forgiveness can be part of it. But there could be a time of let's rekindle this relationship let's rekindle and i want to say when we fall into all types of sin and we know that we're sinning may we rekindle the fellowship and the only way that i can rekindle if till and i've had a fight the only way that i rekindle the relationship is by getting closer to her and allowing us to look each other in the eye and speaking about the elephant in the room and saying, how are we going to get move this elephant out of that little door? The best thing is, if you want to move an elephant out of here, to get it out there, is that you're going to have to do it bite by bite. You're going to have to take it step by step, little by little. If you and I have sin in our lives, we need to work at it. We need to start getting that thing out as quickly as possible. Sometimes you might even have to take the roof off to get the elephant out. It's going to cost you and I if we do not 
But here's the thing. If we do not get rid of the elephant, you know what's going to happen to the elephant after it's been dead three or four days in the room? It's going to start messing up the old atmosphere. It's going to start rotting. You're going to start having maggots to contend with and a smell to contend with. And it's just going to be terrible. And your Christian life is going to suck. But it's because we're not handling the sin in the room. We're not getting rid of it. We're holding on to it, thinking that it's okay. When we put ourselves in their shoes, they've just left everything they knew for the past 400 years behind. They experienced God's close protection, signs, wonders, miracles. Now they're being told he's not going to be as close to them as they were, as he was. Think about this. Lloyd-Jones says, to be given every other blessing is of no value if God is not with you, church. You can have all the money in the world. You can win every single race in your life you want from now on in. It cannot compare to the presence of Jesus. They had to start to understand that the presence of God and having his fellowship and company was infinitely more important than anything else that they knew. Is this a good message? We have been given a second chance by God. For when we were yet sinners, God called us to repentance by the Holy Spirit. God speaks to mankind all the time, but not everyone responds. And we understand that. There's certain people that don't come to repentance. But here's the question that I want to speak. I want to speak to the people online and want to speak to us in this room this morning. How closely, after we've given our life to Christ, how closely do we want to live to God's manifest presence? How close do we want to live to Jesus? How do we want to experience the Holy Spirit? Do we only want to experience it as something that's written in a book? Or do we want him to have him here, right here, closer than a brother? The choice is yours. The choice is mine. You online, the choice is yours. We make these decisions. The Israelites had come to a place of repentance and showed physical signs of remorse. So as Israel's heart is being turned toward God's, towards God, Moses takes the next steps of discipleship to help them restore their relationship with God by setting up a thing called the Tent of Meeting. I found this fascinating. And where does he set up the Tent of Meeting? outside of the camp. He initiated this place to give them an opportunity to make a determined effort to seek the God they had wanted to replace and had rejected at Mount Sinai. So we read this in Exodus 33.7. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far from the camp, very interestingly, strategically, and he called the tent of meeting and everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting. What is he doing here? He's saying, you want to get close to God? I want to see if you do. So I live right here. The tent of meeting's there. And I will know who's serious with God. Now who's going to say, that's mean? We have to understand that if we read carefully, Moses had a routine of going there on a regular basis. 
So all Israel would see when Moses would go to spend time with God. He set the example. He would go into the tent of meeting. The Bible says that when he would go into the tent, a, the glory of God would be at the, at the entrance of the tent. And all of Israel that were tent to one close to where this tent was could see the glory of God manifesting and seeing that Moses spending time with him. And you know what they would do? They would all fall on their knees and start worshiping God. Maybe in your family, you need to be that first person that says, I'm going to be the example. Maybe at your work, you need to be the first person that initiates that conversation about God and allow the manifestation to take place. One of the writers that I love listening to, he makes this comment. He says, if you will call, if you, if you will call God, he will come. He's called Tom, Tommy Tenney. He says, if you will call the Holy Spirit, he will come. And we find here in James 4, 8, it says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. But it's, it's linked with repentance, church. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Let's stop being double-minded. Let's be singly-minded. Let's be focused and say, I am going to seek God out with all my might because I want him to draw close to me. Is that worth an amen? Repentance for sin is an indispensable condition of restoration of God's favor. It was required by Israel. It is required by us. There is no salvation without repentance. This could have been a way for Moses to create a place of worship outside of the camp, outside of their day-to-day -day life, and that it required effort to leave that what they were doing and make an effort to go and spend time with God. They all had stuff to do in the camp, you know, washing nappies, cleaning the house, doing my work, you know, um, cleaning the camels, packing the camels, unpacking the camels, setting up the market stalls. But Moses said to him, you need to make time for God. Get away from what you're doing every day and go and go and find God. Go spend time with Jesus. Don't do it while you're busy there because you're distracted when you're in the camp. But when you leave the camp, leave the stuff of the camp behind and walk into the presence and experience him. Because this is going to make you see the promised land, not that. Doing all the stuff in the camp is not going to get you to the promised land. How can I say that? Because not one of the Jews that left Israel or that left Egypt entered into the promised land. Think about this. Three million that left never made the road. They never made it. They never saw including the leader Moses. You know, Christianity is a serious business. It's not just a thing we do on a Sunday. Was Moses drawing a clear line to see who really wanted to draw close to God? Are we willing to make time outside of our everyday life and give God some time 
to strengthen our relationship with him? These are just questions I'm posing there this morning. It appears that there were no set times to go to the tent of meeting, but that it was left to the individual to go when they felt convicted to go. One thing that Till and I always believed when we were rearing our kids is that when the kids needed attention, we gave it immediately. That's just one thing we did when they were little. Because have you seen little kids coming? Daddy, 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 daddy. I've seen so many dads say, I'm busy now. Just go. Go to your mother. They'll go to the mother. Mommy, mommy, mommy. Mommy's busy now, sweetheart. Go watch TV. And what do we do? We keep on rejecting the little one. And when they hit, when they hit teenage years, they want nothing to do with mom and dad. And we don't understand why. Well, because we never gave them time. And I want to tell you, there are times when the Holy Spirit comes and he tugs on you. He says, I need to see you now. Yeah, Lord, I understand, but you don't understand. I'm really busy now. Now, I, I get you're busy, but you need to come to the tent of meeting now. I need to share this with you now. You know, God, um, can we just reschedule in my diary when I can see you? Uh, Jake, you don't get it. I need to speak to you now. But Lord, I'm just too busy in the camp right now. I've got 10 camels that I've got to wash. Jake, it's important to come and see me now. And he tugs and he tugs and we just scoot him off. We're all guilty. Come on. We're all guilty. missed a verse there oh no it's there Jeremiah 29 you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart and I will be found by you declares the Lord repentance for sin is an indispensable condition for the restoration of God's favor you want God's favor be a person that is quick to repent secondly you must approve yourself with appropriate deeds. Matthew 3 verse 8 says, Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. What type of fruit are we bearing as believers? The term used for bearing fruit is not a simple yielding. It's not just, okay. It is a repentance, the re- 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 excuse me, that produces results. In other words, Lord, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a robber and I'm a, I'm a thief. I'm an abuser and I'm a drunk. I don't do it no more. Those are, fu- those are fruits that are in keeping with repentance. Repentance is not saying you're sorry. Repentance is changing the way we live. That's repentance. This is not just giving it a go. <laughs> I kind of used an Australian term there. Oh, just give, give repentance a go. And if it doesn't work, well, you gave it a go, Jake. It's not about giving it a go, but it involves a concerted effort that produces results in your life. We cannot merely apologize for stealing a car and keep on driving it. Can you imagine? I go to, go to Dave and say, Dave, sorry, Dave, I stole your car and drive off with it. That's not repentance. Yeah, but I told him I was sorry. Yeah, but you didn't give the car back and you haven't gone to the cops to say that you stole the car so that you can be put in prison. 
Yeah, but I don't go to prison. Yeah, but you stole the car. Yeah, but I told him I was sorry. Well, it's too far for that. You should never have stolen the car in the first place. Then you would not go to prison. But because you've stolen the car, you've got to go to the cops and give yourself up and say, I stole Dave's car. What are you going to do with me? Oh, well, go to the prison. Oh, please, please. I, I told him I was sorry. I don't care. The law states, go to prison. We cannot just have this loose, I'm sorry, Lord. How often do believers treat persistent sin as just little mistakes? Oh, I just had a bad day. I, I testified on that this morning. I did not have that little bad day. I choose to have a, have a bad day. I let everything get on top of me, and I should not have allowed things to get on top of me. How many people might use thin thread when, me, when mending their ways? Now, you ladies that are, uh, that are dressmakers and stuff know what I'm saying. You cannot use a very poor thread to make a dress. Because what's going to happen to the dress after the first wash? You're going to have a whole lot of pieces of, 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 of material. Why did it break? Well, maybe it was the way that you mended it. You put it together with the wrong stuff. In his book, I Surrender, Pat Morley writes that the church's integrity problem is in misconception. And he makes the statement, We add Christ to our lives, but do not subtract sin. It is a change in belief without a change in behavior. Who reckons that's so true? Are you a Christian? Yes, I am. So why do you still, still, why do you still steal cars? Well, God's not finished with me yet. Where are the fruits of repentance? I thought you stopped stealing cars. Yeah, but you don't understand my situation. I've got to feed my family, you know. Well, just go get a good job. Oh, and they don't pay as much as cars that are stolen. So I'd rather keep on stealing the cars. We make these excuses. Lloyd-Jones again. When someone begins to be burdened for the presence of God, they immediately feel the call to repentance and set aside time out of their day to meet with God. Fruits of repentance. These are appropriate fruits of repentance. I've got to finish up. I'm going a bit long this morning. Okay, I'm going to pass this one. If I found favor in your sight, Moses says, please show me your ways that I might know you. Don't you think that should be the prayer of our hearts this morning? Moses says, Lord, I'm, I'm trying to help these Israelites come back to you. I'm, by my, I've, I've, I've broke your law. I mean, I broke your, your tablets, Lord, and please forgive me for it. You know, a lot of people say, well, Moses never ever put his foot in the promised land. It's not true. Remember when Jesus and Peter and James went to the mount and who appeared to them on the mount? Moses, Elijah, okay? So it seems that Moses did have a taste <laughs> of Israel. It's just a little bit of a short-sighted trivia. Of all the things that Moses could pray for, he prays for intimacy. He can pray for anything. He prays for intimacy. And why? Because this is the key to ministry and life, our relationship with Jesus. That's what it's about. It's not about our gifts. The Bible says all our gifts will pass away. 
But God gives the gift so that people can be ministered to by the Holy Spirit. Why is the relationship with the Lord so important? Because it enables us to face up to the pressure of temptation. The pressure that creates fear of failure, fear of falling, failing people, perhaps hundreds of people, by intimacy with the Lord, teaches us that failure, amazingly enough, doesn't matter. If we know the Lord intimately, we know of his goodness, his faithfulness, his sovereignty, his ability to turn our failures into victories. But we need to be in tune with his spirit. Growing into intimacy with the Lord, then, is the one thing we need most as we move forward into the tasks that he has given us. This was Moses' view, and it should always be ours, as he said, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring me up from here. Who believes we need the presence? Amen. Moses recognizes the presence of the Lord as the one thing that distinguishes both him and the rest of the Israelites. The Lord is all that makes them different. The presence of the Lord is all that makes us different this morning, church. That's the only difference between you and somebody that does not know Jesus, is the presence of the Holy Spirit. That's the only thing that makes us different. And this difference is intended by the Lord to be noticed by all the people who are upon the face of the earth so that they too might follow the Lord. The Lord grants Moses a request for intimacy. My presence shall go with you, he says in the next verse. And I will give you rest. And again, I will also do this thing which you have spoken for you have found favor in my sight and I have known you by name persistent Moses kept on pushing in Lord show me you I can't show you my face you're going to die well just show me something of you Lord please when God comes and he wants to destroy Israel he says I I have had it with these people Moses jumps in and says you cannot kill your people and he's the intercessor he steps in like like Jesus is our intercessor he steps he says father wait 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 they have my mark upon them you cannot destroy your people. I have died so that they might be set free. And that's what we are set to this morning. And he sends us with the Holy Spirit every day of our lives so that we are able to do all things through Christ that strengthens us. Amen? I'm going to give you a few moments to just make this part of your thinking this morning that Lord... If you do not lead me from this place, I don't want to go, Lord. I need your presence above all things. Father, Psalm 99 says to us this morning that the Lord is king. Let the people tremble in his presence. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion and he is exalted over all peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name because holy is the Lord. Mighty King, lover of justice, you have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Extol the Lord our God, all ye people. Worship him at his footstool, 
holy, holy is he. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called, him on, called on his name. They cried on the Lord and he answered them. He spoke to them in a pillar of cloud and kept his decrees and the statutes that he gave them. O Lord our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Extol the Lord our God and worship his holy, on his holy mountain. For the Lord our God is holy. Amen and amen. We pray you've enjoyed this message from Mike Fuller's Church in the Rainbow. For more information about our church, please go to our website at www.lifefuller'schurch.org.au Till next time, God bless.